So today we're going to talk about a type of photography that I can honestly say I probably won't be doing anytime soon. It's adventure photography with Alex Buis on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, and this is the show where we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. I've got a great show lined up for you today. I do want to remind you, if you want to see the show notes for today or the little bit that I wrote about my guest today, a small gallery of his work, you can always head to the website. It's at behindtheshot.tv. My personal site, if you are interested in following me, is stevebrazel.com. And for that matter, if you want to follow me on social media, I've kind of abandoned Facebook. The pages for both the podcast and myself are still there, though. But mostly, I spend my time at Twitter or Instagram. Personal is at Steve Brazel. It's like the country Brazil, but two L's. And the podcast is at Behind the Shot TV. So a couple things to let you know. Oh, one other thing I almost forgot to tell you is if you're watching on YouTube, because the podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts in audio only or video, meaning if you have a podcast app like Apple Podcasts that supports video, you'll see two feeds when you do a search. If your podcast outlet of choice does not support video, you can always head over to, to uh, YouTube to watch the video. And same thing, show notes are right down there below the like button. Just head on down, read what you want. All the links that we talk about are there. Although there is a little bit more information over at the blog post. And that brings me to, to today's guest, which I have been excited about this all week long. I've done a lot of shows. Never have I done photography like this before. I want to welcome to the show, Alex Buis. Alex, how are you? Hi, Steve. I'm doing really well. Thank you. It's so nice to finally meet you. And I, I should tell people ahead of time, I've been rehearsing your last name. And there will be a point during the show that I probably end up saying Smith just to make it easier. But uh, uh -huh. Alex Buis, you are an adventure photographer. You're kind of based out of Canada and France. Is that a good description? Uh, I used to be based entirely out of France and I moved to Canada about a year ago. And now I'm pretty permanently in Canada. Okay. There's a couple of things about you as I was researching you, I found very, very interesting. When So you're a climber yourself and, and the type of mm -hmm. photography you do when I say adventure photography is pretty out there, extreme mountain climbing, rock climbing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You started photography about the same time that you started climbing, correct? That's correct. Yes. So you really fed each other. And that's what I want to know. How do, I mean, those two worlds arguably are completely different, right? One is, mm -hmm. I guess they're both artistic in many, many ways. They're both technical, but yet they're still completely different. How do those two worlds complement each other in your mind or in your life? Um, I think I was initially attracted really to landscape photography and discovering the great outdoors and the great mountain ranges and then the activity of climbing, first rock climbing and then alpine climbing um, really gave me the inspiration and the motivation to do more climbing so I could take more photos of more extreme places and then activities. Um, and then the other thing is that my interest in photography was born out of a bit of a frustration that I was going into the mountains and seeing those absolutely breathtaking views and I would take photos of them with whatever camera I had and I would come home and it would look pretty terrible and absolutely nothing like what I remembered. Um, so that motivated me to become a better photographer to try and well, get a better camera, but also understand how to take pictures better and how to translate what I had actually seen 
better. So in that sense, it was kind of this uh, emulation between the climbing and the photography that kind of kept pushing each other. What's, what's fascinating about what you just said, though, is is your desire to become better at photography was entirely self-serving in that you wanted to capture those moments for you. Mm-hmm. And yet in doing so, you have so benefited the climbing world as a whole, the the media around that space of climbing and the people who, you know, like you, for example, sell posters, uh, the people who appreciate that type of a thing. But here's the other thing I found about you that I thought was interesting. Uh-huh. I know more photographers that have studied computer science and IT than probably anybody I've ever met. Uh-huh. It's always photographers. Like literally everybody, my buddy, Aunt Pruitt, me, um, I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is that that's another technical world. Yeah. What What do you think? I've tried to answer this for myself before. What do you think the connection is between geekery and photography? And then, of course, how does that tie in to your to your photography? I, I think it's a really interesting question. And I will add another data point to it in that so many climbers are actually scientists and especially physicists, but there's a lot of mathematicians as well, like widely really? overrepresented, yes. If you look at alpine climbers in particular, there's just so many uh, theoretical scientists. And I similarly, I, I'm not sure why that is. Um, but I think there is, especially when you go into the, the geekery and there was definitely a period of my time where I was like playing with the Linux kernel and doing all sorts of uh, spending hours in front of a computer coding and whatnot, that there is some of that happening with photography as well, that you can really experiment and break things and play with things in a very creative way while still in a technical um, in a technical field. And I think the, the price of entry is so much um, easier or smaller than learning how to paint or learning how to draw. Uh, which I think also would be a great creative outlet. But you can just pick up a camera and without really knowing what you're doing, start taking pictures of, you know, leaves in the rain and long exposures of waterfalls or whatever, that very easily, very quickly, you get stuff that really makes you feel good about having expressed some creativity. And and there is a there is a creativity in both. For example, when I when I design or create a network infrastructure or as you say, do coding mm-hmm. is uh, I kind of approach my post-production. I think mentally, I, I should actually analyze that mm-hmm. at some point. I think mentally, I kind of approach my post-production in the same analytical way mm-hmm. that I approach my IT background. Uh, I just love the tie in there. So let's sure. get into your adventure stuff. Cause there's a couple of interesting highlights in your career. I'm going to list a couple off sure. and on each and every one, you may see me make facial expressions like, wow. Okay. You sailed an expedition yacht around Cape Horn. Mm-hmm. You at the same time were able to photograph Usain Bolt at the Olympics. Yes. You skied to the North pole. Yeah. You climbed K2. No, I climbed on K2. I climbed on K2. I didn't actually reach the summit. And then here's the one that blew my mind, because I love the way you actually wrote this one on your website. You got winched from a rescue helicopter at night on purpose. Yes. Do you get afraid? Uh, Yes, I get it. I think fear is very healthy in the mountains in general. Um, But... 
I think there is a, uh, a tendency once you put a camera in front of your face to forget about a lot. And that's like, that can actually be dangerous in my field. I have some memories of um, when I was learning to paraglide and I was getting into that really dangerous spot where you start being um, proficient enough that you gain confidence, but you're not proficient enough that you can actually get yourself out of bad situations. That's the really tricky part. Uh, and I would just let go of everything and start taking pictures from the air because it's spectacular and an unusual point of view. And then I would realize that I was actually flying straight into a cliff because I was just so focused on a camera. Um, and I just forget everything else. And when I, when I do big photo shoots in the mountains, especially alpine climbs, um, there's different form formats that I can take, but when it's for a client and it's a, a kind of a big production where I really have to bring the bark, um, I will typically have a mountain guide just ensure my safety. Even though I, if I was by myself, I would be perfectly able to do the, the climb, no problem. But if I have somebody, I can delegate all of the, the safety decisions um, and I can just focus on the camera, then that can actually, um, that, that is a lot safer than, than me trying to do both at the same time. Because again, once I have the camera in front of me, I tend to be yeah, which, on the image making. Which it so would demand, but, but where you are at now has gotten you to a client list that mm -hmm. both in that adventure space and elsewhere is kind of a who's who. We're talking Patagonia, Sports Illustrated, Red Bull, BMW, Nissan, Microsoft, Adidas, CNN, Black Diamond, Nat Geo, Garmin. Uh, your your pedigree from a client point of view is so well established, yeah. which then brings me to the way that I found you. There is a, a company known as Wonderful Machine, and they reached out to me and said, hey, mm -hmm. we work with a set of photographers. Joe McNally is represented by Wonderful Machine, if I recall correctly. And they, they, the first name they brought to me was you. Hey, would you be interested in having him on a podcast? And I went and looked at your site and went, you know, hell yeah, please. Um, and I had heard of Wonderful Machine. I wasn't exactly sure what role mm -hmm. they played in a photographer's life. Uh, can you explain that relationship? Uh -huh. um, yes, I can explain it from my point of view as a photographer. So as a client of Wonderful Machine, and for me, they are kind of halfway between a traditional rep and um, a directory of photographers. And they vet their photographers, uh, the ones who make into the, uh, the directory pretty uh, thoroughly. And then they provide a lot of marketing services uh, and they have different departments on top of that. One of them being that they can produce your shoot if you want, and then they take an hourly rate or help you bid for a shoot. Uh, when you have a big client come knocking um, and uh, they can also take your portfolio on the road and go right. meet with clients on your behalf. Um, but for the most part, it is about having a directory of really vetted high-end photographers that uh, clients can, and, you know, when they are wondering, I need a photographer in Europe who specializes in climbing photography, then they can find, I mean, now they can't anymore, but they need somebody in Canada, then they can, they can, Find, um, well, and I will say when you browse through the list of photographers that they do represent, it is a who's who. And there is over 600, as I recall, photographers. So I just wanted to say thank you to Bridget for right. reaching out to me. Cold call was wonderful. And I, I appreciate you introducing me to Alex here. I introduced you 
as an adventure photographer. I'm curious how you define, because really when you look through your portfolio, it's adventure photography, but even there, it's somewhat varied in your your end results, right? How do you describe adventure photography? Uh, well, I don't necessarily entirely describe myself as an adventure photographer. I really am going into different directions as well. Um, and I'm trying to do more industrial work, especially now that I'm in Alberta. Um, and I also have an entirely different facet of my work, which is humanitarian photography, which is not on a website uh, because it's just too complicated to explain to potential clients um, on the on the website. It's just too weird to have humanitarian and adventure. Um, but adventure photography, I, I've actually never thought about how you define it. It would be photography that is very authentic and has a more editorial, uh, I think, feel to it in that there is this implicit contract with the viewer. What you see is the real thing. When you see uh, Alex Honnold climbing a cap without a rope, he really didn't have a rope. You know, it's not like Jimmy Chin removed, photoshopped the rope out, even though that would be very easy to do. So there is that, that notion that what you see is the real adventure. Um, and then the other thing that makes it a bit unique is that in almost every case, the photographer needs to be participating in the activity to some extent. Uh, I, I take photos of world-class climbers and I'm far from one. So there's definitely ways of, uh, you know, setting ropes up and um, getting a, a slightly easier way or sometimes even using a helicopter to access some, some uh, paths. But in general, I have to be very at ease in the mountains, very at ease. Uh, sailing uh, very easy in, in the environment so that I can not only survive and not only go on the, the adventure, but also have enough brain power left. To that take that honesty, I'm going to use the word honesty that you kind of describe. I see in your work, there, there's a photojournalistic mm -hmm. documentarian viewpoint from your photographs. And yet that, that mm -hmm. documentarian viewpoint is brought up to the le level of a world-class cinematographer almost in a movie. And I, I appreciate that blending mm. of storytelling, authentic storytelling yeah. with cinematography, light mm -hmm. placement, use of light, use of composition. I'm assuming you hit limits with your gear out there sometimes, do you not? Um, you know, the temperatures, yes. et cetera? Well, usually... No, not really. I mean, I will cease functioning well before my camera dies, typically. Um, I have some photos of my camera in the North Pole, and it's covered in frost, and it's working just fine. I think in the days of digital, you have to go to pretty uh, serious extremes to, uh, to, damage, uh, to damage the gear, to see the limitations of the gear. Um, in the days of film, I've heard about people on the summit of Everest where the the, the film is tearing because of the uh, because of the cold and, and the lack of oxygen. Uh, I, to be honest, I haven't encountered that really. What I encounter is more. I, I do like light. I do like good light, and I do try to use the light, uh, artificial light, outside in some situations. But it is often very difficult to do uh, in the mountains proper. And that's kind of more the limitation is having to move quickly over ground because conditions are constantly changing. And for safety, you need to be, you know, sometimes up away from the mountain right. before the snow melts too much, that sort of situation. Or you're in an avalanche path and you don't want to linger. Um, and so 
that makes it difficult to get people to do things multiple times or um, or to set up nice lighting gear from three different angles, that sort of thing. That's one of the limitations I can see. Having to work with the conditions, having to be very flexible uh, rather than uh, kind of setting things up in a very... um, Okay. So just a quick reminder to everybody, the show is available wherever you get your podcasts, audio or video only. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, if you don't have video in your podcast app, which you do in the Apple podcast or a lot of the native podcast apps, but if, if you're listening on Spotify or Amazon or something like that, and you don't have a video option there, you can always head over to YouTube. Also, I want to take a second to uh, thank my friends over at DVE Store. It's dvestore.com. You can head there for all your digital video equipment needs. They're responsible for the HD video on the podcast, so I thank them very, very much for that. And I want to get into today's image, and I'm not even sure where to begin because, again, this is a type of photography. All the shows I've done And I always try and vary it up, right? I'm a music photographer, and early on, I was always afraid people are going to just think it's a live concert photography show. So I almost avoided it to to an extreme. But never have I had anything like this. And this shot, I just have to tell you, Alex, is it's not only beautiful. Like, if there was not a person in here, this would just be a really cool, beautiful shot, right? But then you add the person, you add the composition, you add the color and the power of it. And this is just absolutely stunning. This is Jeff Mercier climbing out of the depths of, of a moulin, a crevice at Mer de Glace in Chamonix, France. Did I, did I get all of that right? You did. Okay. Explain, first of all, is Jeff a friend of yours? He is. He's also one of the best ice and mixed climbers in the world. Uh, he's a member of the Elite Rescue Unit at the PGHM. But if you are climbing in Chamonix somewhere or in the French Alps and you get in big trouble for whatever reason, then he is going to be one of the people coming to rescue you on a helicopter uh, or on foot, depending on conditions. And he is, yeah, again, one of the very best ice climbers and mixed climbers in the world. So before I get into the technical stuff, because I want to do touch on that for those that are kind of into the mm-hmm. technical stuff, is it my understanding that Chamonix, it, th- th- there's a lot of climbing going on? Is that like a climbing capital of the world for this? Yes, it very much is. So not necessarily for ice climbing. There's many disciplines of climbing, but for when it comes to alpine climbing and alpine rock climbing, uh, it is one of the very best places in the world. And the access you get to the high mountains is unparalleled because there's a number of lifts. And then if you don't know the topography of Chamonix, it is sitting at a thousand meters, about 3000 feet of elevation. And you have Mont Blanc, the highest mountain in Western Europe, that's at 4810 uh, meters, which is uh, just under 15,000 feet within like two horizontal kilometers. So you have walls of granite and glaciers just towering over you. Uh, immediately above town. It's a really unique place. You know what? Before we get into the technical, you just said something that makes me want to just inject this in really quick. And that mm-hmm. is you do have, I, I mentioned it earlier, or alluded to it earlier, you do have climbing posters. And when, when you mentioned Mount mm-hmm. Blanc, that kind of ties into the URL. Sure. Where can people find your climbing posters at? So the climbing posters at montblanclines.com. Uh, and what they are is I've been taking... Uh, high-resolution photos of 
some of the most famous and some more obscure climbing venues in the world, uh, a lot in the Alps, a lot in the US and Canada, and there's also K2, and enjoying every single climbing route uh, on them. I just finished El Cap, uh, which is a pretty ridiculous one in terms of the amount of details that there is. And it's kind of half between a um, fine art poster and half between a climbing guidebook. Um, so it's a project that grew out of COVID, uh, COVID lockdown and forced computer time and kind of expanding into a side business. This shot, first mm-hmm. of all, as I mentioned, it, it's Jeff in Chamonix, France. But do you do you title your images? Does this shot have a name? I don't typically title my images because they always end up being like moulin or crevasse or right. you know skiing. Or, it gets right. very repetitive and yeah. Person on person on skis. Uh, yes. Let's let's hit the technical side of this. Sure. And correct me. I know you've got it in front of you. Correct me if any of this is is sure. incorrect. Exif data showed aperture priority mm-hmm. ISO two thousand one one eightieth of a second. F4, 16 millimeters yep. on a Nikon D850, yep. uh, 16 to 35 F4, mm-hmm. white balance was set to auto. Mm-hmm. My first question, yep. why aperture priority for you? I shoot 99% of my work in aperture priority. Um, that is really something I trust my camera and I have now shot um, close to a million images. And I am really pretty happy with the matrix metering of uh, Nikon cameras in general. So I trust them um, quite extensively. And it's one less decision that I have to do um, when I'm shooting. I don't want to miss shots, but I want to get exposure widely out of WAG because I'm too focused on my composition and then I forget to adjust the, uh, the aperture or the, the shutter speed. So I, I usually try to set the ISO to a uh, happy medium where I'm going to get good quality, but um, I'm still going to get a good enough shutter speed. And then I set my aperture where I want it, uh, which a lot of the time is F8, but in dark situations like this one, it might be F4, uh, which is as, as wide open as my lens will go. And then I just let the shutter speed do its own thing. So while keeping an eye on it to make sure it's, you know, yeah, I'm not going to get blurred. Right, right, right. Which actually was going to be my question was you went F4 on mm-hmm. this, which seems really shallow, except that you're at 16 millimeters. So it's not yeah. as shallow as you would think it would be. Exactly. But are you not worried as you're up there? I mean, 180th seems mm-hmm. that like that could be slow in this scenario. Could it not? It could be slow. Ice climbing is a sport that um, is... It's a succession of fast movement with relatively static in between. So when Jeff swings his ice axe, there's some really fast action. And then kind of, if you're lucky, the ice kind of sprays everywhere and can be very spectacular. And then there is uh, getting to a relatively static position so that he can establish himself on all four points and then kind of move his legs relatively slowly. And it's relatively predictable as well. It's not like football where you have the ball kind of going everywhere, hockey, God forbid. Um, and uh, in this case, I kind of knew that it was a happy medium and I wanted to keep the ISO to a relatively low uh, setting, which is 2000, uh, because I knew I was going to have to get some um, dynamic range uh, because I wanted to get from the, the really bright reflections. It, it's a bright, sunny day. 
when I'm shooting this and the, the surface is maybe 10 meters, uh, 30 ish feet above me. Um, so I wanted to have the reflection of that, which would be quite bright, and then the endless depth of the tunnel, which goes into pitch black. So I didn't want to get my eyes so too high and then lose that dynamic range. Uh, and that's why I compromised more on the, um, on the shutter speed and I was timing my shots to have a good, interesting body position, but to not have too much movement. So you're 30 meter, you're, you're 30 feet below the surface here in the crevice like yourself. Mm-hmm. And obviously Jeff is farther down than you. Yeah. And you have the wherewithal in mm-hmm. your mind to think about, to slow it all down, I, I would almost guess and process the composition and the fact mm-hmm. that you want the dynamic range. I love I love that in this situation, you can process that clearly. I, for those of you that are on the audio feed, I'm gonna describe this photo to you. And when we're done, Alex will tell me where I messed up at. So it's a landscape orientation shot, kind of a standard ratio, like a 4-3 ratio, maybe a little bit wider than 4-3. You're, looking, d- you're l- looking down the crevice, right? So imagine, um, imagine a crevice and, and picture it in your head almost round and you're floating in the middle, except you're not, you're kind of at the edge, but like leaning off the edge and picture in this particular case, the, the center of that crevice is just below center frame, right? And so the, you are on the bottom of the frame that's being shot here, kind of leaning off, looking down the crevice. It's shaped oval-like. It's wider left to right than it is tall. Some areas, like in the upper left corner, are really dark. Bottom right corner, more visible, more snow, like a white, almost frost-looking type thing. The center is very clearly very deep. Like it's dark, except for in the middle, on the side, on the wall, there's Jeff climbing this thing, which in and of itself to me is borderline crazy but I love that this is happening in front of me uh, because you feel like you're there. Like there, there's that photojournalistic part I was talking about earlier. I feel like I am here with Alex and Jeff. The climber is about a third of the way up from the bottom at 10 o'clock and his feet are spread to the walls left and right using a pick in each hand to climb, wearing a white helmet, orange outfit, the walls are bluish, Walls are beautiful, actually. And everything about this just screams of that blue type of ice that you would get on a glacier when you go down below the white surface. And you're getting amazing colors in the wall and whites and blues. And again, areas of pitch darkness. You could It gives you the feeling of the depth that's in front of you. Did I miss anything? Yeah, that sounds, that's a pretty accurate description. Okay. So Chamonix, France, tell me how this shot came about. So the Moulins are very specific crevasses. They're very unique, and they're actually formed by, um, in the summer, you have actually little rivers that come down the, gla- the glaciers. Uh, so this is a glacier that, that has ice year-round. Uh, but in winter, it's covered in snow. And in summer, there's a few rivers. And then at some points, the rivers, because the water is so much warmer than, even though it's very cold, it's, it's warmer than the ice, it kind of digs down and it burrows down. And imagine if you have a cup of ice cream and then you pour some 
uh, hot water on your ice cream is going to kind of drill a hole in the middle. This is exactly the same principle. And those can get, get really, really deep. Uh, and then you have some subterranean rivers that can also happen. But there's a short window in the fall where the, the rivers have stopped running because it's too cold, but you haven't had a ton of snow yet to fill up the crevasse where you can actually go and climb in them. And the ice you find is extremely old ice. It might be a few now a few years because of uh, ice melt, but it could be a few decades old, uh, maybe a few centuries if you go deep enough. And it's very, very hard, uh, as in um, very brittle and very uh, hard to swing your ice axe into uh, and to put ice crews uh, for protection as well. And so for those few weeks, you can actually rappel into the crevasses and climb out of them. And it's a very popular pastime in Chamonix um, because you don't have the frozen waterfalls yet that you can climb um, outside because it's not cold enough. But this, uh, this you can climb. And then they're just such unique environments. And I have shot in them a number of times before, but at some point, Jeff, uh, who I know well, who's a friend, sent me a message on Instagram one evening saying, hey, I'm going climbing tomorrow with a friend. Uh, do you want to come take some photos? Uh, and I just jumped on the on the opportunity to do that without a client or anything, just because I like going out into the mountains and shooting cool stuff. And sometimes I manage to sell the photos, sometimes I don't. Um, so this was a spec shoot, a uh, speculation shoot. And um, then we did some climbing in some less extreme crevasses. And on the way back to the train to get down to the valley floor, we spotted this absolute monster, uh, which it goes way deeper than uh, than it even looks in a photo. And Jeff was very, very confidently upside down. There's his belayer with a yellow jacket. You can just sort of guess he's actually hanging from the wall. So the wall disappears into darkness below his feet and goes much deeper than, than he is. And then he started climbing. And for me, it was a matter of where do I set up my own rope? Where do I rappel down to get an interesting angle? Because I don't want to be right on top of him. It will be, it won't show the depth enough. And I don't want to be too far away because I still want to have some connection with the climber. So I kind of chose the opposite wall. Let, let me, um, let, let me interject one question there. Cause you just said something I'm dying to know. How far away from him are you? Um, I would say about 20 feet, sorry, um, 15 meters. That would be about 50, 70 feet, something like that. 50 to 70 feet. Okay. Because what, what, what you just said about the fact that you mm -hmm. didn't want to be right above him, you yeah. wanted a, a different angle and positioning him up towards 10 o'clock and you at the bottom was, was a brilliant composition choice. I apologize interrupting you. Continue. What I was really uh, aware of is I wanted space for him to climb towards. And that's something that I am always super conscious because I shoot action sports, even when they're ready with slow action, still action and he's still moving. And I really wanted the eye to have a lot of the space that he's about to climb on um, while still showing the environment around him. And that's kind of why I picked that composition. Uh, and I don't remember, honestly, if that was a conscious process or if it was more like looking down on it and thinking like, yeah, this is the spot without necessarily being able to um, express why I picked that, that particular spot to drop my rope. So all natural light. There's something in my head and explain to me why from a physics <laughs> point uh -huh. of view, you're now going to be put your physics hat on for me. He's yeah. you're 30 feet from the surface. Sure. He's let's call yeah. it 50 or more feet from you. So he's you know, inching up close to a uh hundred -huh. feet below the surface. 
I would imagine that that darkness I see at the bottom would be engulfing him. Well, one thing is, again, I'm shooting at uh, 1 180th of a second in ISO 2004, so I'm actually letting a lot of light in. The ambient light level were pretty low. But what I'm absolutely fascinated with, uh, fascinated by with ice in general, and that's why I love shooting ice climbing, is the way it reflects and refracts light. So you have some light that just bouncing coming from the surface, where again, it's a really bright day and there's snow on the ground, so that uh, that makes it even brighter. And then it kind of bouncing back down that shaft. And then you have some bouncing of the walls and kind of getting into all the little funnels. And then you have some getting through the, the ice when it's not too thick. Uh, like that pillar on his left, there's a little bit of ice that's actually getting through it. And you always get such interesting light. One of the things I love doing the most is shooting ice climbing at night because then I can set up a few headlights and a few studio lights and strobes and really play with transparency, translucency, and with reflections and have some absolutely crazy um, light effects. And that's, again, ice. And then when you add the texture of the old ice uh, with all the, the layers that are just years and years of ice compressed by the glacier, then you get an environment that's absolutely unique. I should have mentioned when I described this, those layers. So somewhat similar to if you see, uh, you know, sedimentary rock, like if you see images of a Grand Canyon, it's that. You've got these mm -hmm. clear delineations of layer buildup that also adds, by the way, to the composi mm -hmm. co compositional feel of this image in that because this is an oval-shaped looking crevice and then you have those lines, it almost gives you a Fibonacci spiral, golden golden spiral feel. Mm -hmm. But I pulled this into Lightroom and in Lightroom, when you're in the crop uh -huh. tool, if you hit the O key, you can change the overlay and everything in this image, uh -huh. one of the overlays is diagonal crops, diagonal lines that make triangles. This lines up spot on to those diagonal crops. Did you crop this or is this pretty much framed in camera? I think this one is out of camera. I have no problem about cropping in general, but I think this one's pretty straight out of camera. You're, in terms of the, the contrast, not the composition. You're, oh, sorry, the composition, not the contrast. Your compositional mind, and I see this in all of your work. Like I, I lost, I kid you mm -hmm. not, I lost a lot of time browsing through your website. And at one point had to yell to my wife, you got to see this, and had her come in to go through your website because picking the shot mm -hmm. alone took a while with you and me going back and forth because I'm going to be honest with you. There were like 50 shots that I wanted to use in, in this particular show. When it comes to composition, we now know that as you're on the side of this crevice or on the side of a hill, you're so aware of composition in your mind that you will almost suspend remembering where you're at and the safety features to focus on that shot. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking through a viewfinder yep. and you are lining up a shot, mm -hmm. how deep do you go? I'm saying this next to a crevice. So this is actually you know, sure. pun intended. How deep do you go in your mind on composition? Are you thinking of positioning are you thinking of, you know, end result? Are you thinking of relationships of objects? Because that's the other thing is where where Jeff is compared to you 
relationally, the, the mm -hmm. viewer's eye point to Jeff also spot on. So are you aware of all of that in camera? I think, well, first there's a lot of pre-visualization that's happening, uh, especially here, where to set up my robe. Uh, I was kind of going through my mind. I was like, okay, if I drop my robe here, then it's going to look like this. And if I drop it there, it's going to look like that. Uh, I, I think that conversation happens in my mind, but on a subconscious level for the most part. And it's once I get back on a computer and sometimes I play with crops, so sometimes it just works from the get-go. Um, I realize, oh yeah, this one works because he's in the right spot in the frame and then there's all those leading lines and then he's got space to, to go to. And uh, as you say, the, the, the spiral thing, that's something I hadn't even uh, noticed. And it's actually, it's really interesting because over the past few years, I've been doing some mentorships and a lot of portfolio reviews and being able to identify that in images, I find really, really interesting. Uh, and being able to vocalize, like, this is why this composition works. This is why this composition doesn't necessarily work or why this composition could be better. Um, but I think overall is that I have consumed so many images, both from from my own work, but also a lot from other photographers and from painters and from all sorts of visual media, a lot of movies as well. And there's this huge database in my brain of of images and of good composition and bad composition. And I think there's some subconscious process that goes and accesses that database when I have my eye in the viewfinder and without me realizing, I'm like, yeah, okay, Jeff should be in there. Jeff should be in that position in the frame. It, it works. You said something that really struck me though, and that is that you've looked at so many shots, you kind of know when they work and when they don't work. And, and one of the things I love, and it, it doesn't happen often, but periodically a shot ends up in front of me where I look at it and I know it works and I love how it works. And for some odd reason, I can't identify in that specific picture compositionally. I'm not sure what's drawing uh -huh. me in, right? But I can feel it like deep down. Yeah. And I, I kind of love that mystery of trying to figure it out. But this one, mm -hmm. everything about this shot pulls you in. Literally, you're going from wide to this little dark spot on the end and it is pulling you down there with Jeff. So here's mm -hmm. a question based on how you shot this. You get yeah. back, you pull this in. What's your standard post-processing workflow? I, I import in Photomechanic and I do my initial edit in Photomechanic because it's a lot faster than Lightroom. Same here, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so all I do is I mark all the obvious rejects, I mark as rejects and then I delete immediately. And then I just have yes or no. And the yeses are only, if there's any potential whatsoever, I will mark it. And then I import everything in Lightroom and I do a lot of my work in Lightroom. Actually, basically all of my work in Lightroom. Um, and uh, yeah, in that particular situation, I was very excited because I had a lot of images. There's quite a few from that session. It's not just this one. Because again, it was such a graphic, uh, such a beautiful environment and such beautiful light that I could have shot pretty much anything and it would have looked good uh, down in that crevasse. But this one really stands out for the... the I think it, the, the word you use is, is very adequate, the mystery of it, because it is such a unique and unusual environment that very few people will have been able to witness in their lives uh, and that very few people have seen in photos even. Um, 
and uh, and then the contrast in color with uh, the bright red outfit, which I'm forever grateful to uh, Jeff for wearing. That wasn't planned, was and, it? Um, uh, he's a sponsored climber, and he has worked with a lot of photographers, so he knows how to make us happy. Wow! Wow! You um, should pay him for that. But yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, he's he's a really good, uh, really good subject for that, that sort of stuff. Um, Do you? But yeah, no, I was very happy with this. One. Yeah, it's it's so gorgeous. Do you have any mobile apps that you use when you're out that you couldn't live without? Uh, I could definitely live without, but I use Sunseeker a whole lot to predict where the sun's going to be and to do some pre-planning, um, especially for landscape. I do more and more planning ahead of time. Um, it's one of the consequences of having uh, kids now is I have less time to just go out and mess around and see what happens. And I kind of need to be a bit more uh, intentional when I go out and shoot. So I do a lot of uh, pre-planning with uh, FatMap. I use it a whole lot. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar nope. with it, but it's basically a 3D, um, think 3D Google Earth, or 3D, well, Google Earth is 3D, but uh, 3D Google Maps that shows the mountains in a really um, accurate way. Uh, and, and what's amazing about it is I can select any viewpoint anywhere and say, okay, the top of my hike or the top of my climb is going to be on top of that mountain. What will I be able to see from there? And then I pair that with uh, the photographer's ephemeris. So Google Earth has a feature where you can see where the, the sun's going to be. And that gives me a pretty accurate way of, okay, the sun's, if I'm on top of this mountain at 4 p.m., I'll be able to see that other mountain with that vision of foreground and then the sun's going to hit that particular feature. So I do that quite a lot now. Um, so again, FatMap and uh, Photographers Ephemeris and Google Earth. Otherwise, um, not really. No, I tend not to look at my phone very much when I'm out in the mountains. Okay. So let's switch gears. We're going to go into a mm -hmm. speed round. Just answer these as fast as you can. And the truth is sure. nobody's timing it. Your favorite... Okay adventure photography tip if somebody wanted to try what you do what's your favorite or best tip for them um go out a whole lot and actually do the activity don't try to take photos of rock climbing if you're not a rock climber yourself for instance because i mean there's a safety component but also you just will not understand the activity and how to get uh, appealing images but if you are a dedicated rock climber then that's when you can get good rock climbing images so if you thing is hiking then try to get some really good hiking photos by going hiking a lot and taking a camera and my and i'll add another one uh sorry is keep the camera available at all times if the camera is in your backpack i can guarantee you will have a couple from the beginning of the hike and one from the summit and maybe one from the descent but that moment of magic where you'll have the perfect bend in the trail and the perfect lineup of the legs of your hiking mates and the light is hitting everything just right you're not gonna bother and get your backpack down get a camera get a photo and then i often take photos without even stopping walking and just have it in a little side pouch and just get it up and get it back down so that brings in the question if it's not in your backpack how are you carrying your camera is mm -hmm. it on a strap are you using a spider holster uh, or Various ways. Uh, I use Peak Design Capture a lot. Uh, I am a Peak Design ambassador and I have been for over 10 years now. Big fan of the, the capture, which was the initial 
device so that allows you to kind of clip on the backpack strap or on your belt right. on your climbing harness. So I use that a lot. And I also use a think tank has a line of uh, belt pouches that allow me to um, carry stuff below my backpack and above my climbing harness typically and still have it really easy I live access. on the think tank stuff. I, I, every shoot I'm mm -hmm. on, I have my, my think tank belt system on. What What is the biggest there mistake you, you almost made or made? Oh, geez. Uh, well, I've almost died a number of times. So I've been buried in an avalanche. Um, I have almost fell down from the northwest of the Aiga without a rope when a pole broke. I've punched through a crevasse and almost fell down that without a rope. Um, so I've done a lot of things that could have resulted in me being very dead at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, those would definitely qualify. Which is why I started this by saying, this is not a type of photography I will uh, probably be doing anytime soon. What is your favorite <laughs> composition rule if you have one? That's the one I mentioned earlier. If you have movement, make sure that there is space for your subject to move into. The number one thing I see is people having a hiker and then the hiker's moving left to right in the frame and he's close to the right edge. And then as a viewer, I'm left, I'm left frustrated because I want to see where he's going. And the faster the movement, the more you space. Often you referred to as nose room, actually. Something for them to look into or move into, yeah. What is... Yes, that works with gaze exactly. as well, yeah. uh, What's your favorite drink? Oh, uh, good IPA, probably. Or a good French wine, which is much harder to find in Canada. And your favorite band or singer? Uh, Sigur Ross would probably take the, the prize. Okay. And the final question, is there a photographer mm -hmm. out there that you think more people should know about and follow? Uh, yes, there is a woman photographer. She's a photojournalist. She's called Danielle Villesana. And I'm sorry if I don't say her name properly. Uh, and she has done some absolutely amazing, um, documentary work. And there is another one who's a personal friend of mine and he's a war photographer, just came back from Ukraine for the second time. He's called Eric Bouvet, B-O-U-V-A-E-T. And his work is absolutely incredible. Um, and he deserves to. Uh, so I will it. make sure there's, we, we've mentioned so many links in this show. I am going to, when I edit this, mm -hmm. try and find everyone. And if you head to the blog post over at behindtheshot.tv, I will have all the links down at the bottom, along with something that I, that I wrote about my guest here. I, I've got a whole little bit that I wrote about Alex. And then I've got a six shot sample gallery of Alex's work that you can, you can go check out as well. And again, if you're on YouTube all those links are on YouTube as well. Just head down below the like button, hit the like button on your way down and all the links are down there. But again, the, the, the big paragraph of text that I wrote isn't on YouTube because YouTube does have some character limits. So your best bet at that point is to go over to the blog post. If people want to find you and those of you watching on video, I have been popping mm -hmm. up all of these URLs or social media handles, et cetera, throughout the show on video. But if you're listening on audio, those are in the blog post or on YouTube as well. But uh, for people just to hear it, if they're driving or something like that, what is your website? My website is alexbreeze.com. And so for all of the non-French speaker, Breeze is spelled B-U-I-S-S-E. Okay. So alexbreeze.com. And Alex Breeze on Instagram and Twitter. Uh -huh. Facebook is Alex. Twitter is not very, I, I should say that Twitter is more of a personal expression slash politics and not so much of a photography. Um, 
if you want the photo stuff, it's very much Instagram. Okay. And then also you do have a Facebook page, Alex Buis Photography. I do. Uh, and Correct. then climbing posters. If people want your climbing posters, where do they go? Mm-hmm. They go to www.montblanclines.com. And that's the French spelling. So Montblanc, M-O-N-T-B-L-A-N-C. And in lines, L-I- as you would expect. L-I-N-E-S, and there is yeah. also a book. Yeah. There's also a book that came out in French and Italian last fall. And it's about to come out in English uh, in October. Uh, that is all about, it's the, the posters and then it's a decade of adventure photography. It's all about the Mont Blanc Ranch, so above Chamonix in the French and Italian Swiss Alps. Um, yeah. Alex, again, can't say it enough. First of all, love the shot and love your work. I cannot say enough, though, I, how much I appreciate you coming on and talking and, and uh, joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Alex Buis, thank you so very much. If you want to know more about Alex, head on over to the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. If you want to follow me anywhere, my website is stevebrazel.com, like the country Brazil, but two L's. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, either myself or the podcast, Instagram and Twitter are the two best places. It's at Steve Brazel or at behindtheshot.tv. And again, if you're on YouTube, please leave a comment throw a like button down there, subscribe if you would. In fact, if you are listening to this or watching this on a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, it is available in audio only or video. And I would really appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, if you like what you're seeing, give us a five-star review, drop a written review. I check them often and it really does help with discoverability. But to everybody, regardless, thanks very much for watching. I'm Steve Brazel. Make sure you join us on the next show as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind the shot. 